Revelation chapter 2 is our text this morning. We'll begin in verse 18, and the church at Thyatira goes through verse uh, 29, but today we're only going to have time to go through uh, verse 21. If you're a guest here at Great Hills, we are currently in a study uh, in the great book of the Apocalypse, the book of Revelation. And so uh, if the Lord wills and gives us the strength, our goal is to preach verse by verse to cover every single verse that is in all 22 chapters of this great book written by the Apostle John somewhere toward the end of the first century around A.D. 95. And so we're so glad that you're with us today and you're going to study uh, God's Word. I'm just so excited about this message. There's a lot of information that I want to share with you today. But more than anything else, I pray that the Lord of His church would speak to your heart and He would, he would show you things that you're doing well and that God would show you some areas in your life where you need encouragement and where you need uh, improvement. You know, that's one of the reasons why I love to come to church. I need to come to church. I need to worship God. I need to be in the presence of God's people. I need to be encouraged and affirmed, and I need to be exhorted and admonished. And Jesus does all of those things in these seven literal, geographical, physical churches in the first century. And by the way, these churches are not the only churches in Revelation uh, chapter 2 and 3. The only, it's the only seven that are highlighted that are mentioned. I believe they're representative of the churches then as well as the churches uh, today. When you study these seven, there's an interesting dynamic going on. There is a progressive worsening of the spiritual conditioning of the churches. Let me say that again. As you walk through these seven churches, we're going to get to number four today, Thyatira. It's not, um, it's not that they're getting any better in their spiritual walk with the Lord. You, you see a general worsening of the spiritual condition of the hearts of the members of these churches. By the time we get to Laodicea, it's real bad, okay? And so we're going to just walk through these and hopefully ask God to speak to us, God, what you would have us to know cognitively what you would have us to know doctrinally, theologically, orthodoxy is very, very important, but also orthopraxy. God, how do we put this into practice? How do we take what we learn from your word, and how does it make a difference in the way that we live our lives here in our great city of, of Austin, Texas? Another interesting factoid to me as I studied this text with you today is this is the longest letter to the smallest city. The longest letter of the seven and it's given to the smallest city. You know, you know, God's not as impressed with the things that we're as impressed with. You know, size and preeminence and prominence and location and all those things. You know, God loves His church. And, and maybe a little small band of 15 people in a house church in some remote area in China, the Lord Jesus Christ is just as present and just as concerned with that body of believers as He is in a large church or in a mega church here in the United States. God loves His church. And if you're a part of the kingdom of God and you are a Christian, then you ought to be a part of a local assembly, a local body of Christ. Now, I know that's not I know that's not very popular in America, but it's very popular in Scripture. In fact, the Bible would know nothing of our rugged, individualistic, Americanized Christianity, which says, I can do this on my own. I don't need you, and you don't really need me, so I will just practice my Christianity on my own. We can believe that, and we can be at fault as well, because the Bible knows nothing of this Lone Ranger, isolated, alone Christianity. We have to be in fellowship with one another. We have to be in 
in, in communion. We need to learn from one another. So let me begin by reading this amazing text. And again, I'm only going to get through verse 21. And believe you me, there is a lot in these four or five verses. And to the angelos of the ecclesia. And the word angel, angelos, it means a messenger. I, I believe that he's talking to the pastor, the spiritual leader of that church at Thyatira. He addresses all seven churches the same way, to the angelos, to the messenger. By the way, that's the only time somebody's going to call me an angel, amen, as, a, as an angelos, a messenger, pastor of the local church, ecclesia. It's where we get the word ecclesiology, ecclesiastical, and so forth. In Thyatira, Thyatira, about 40 miles southeast of the last city that we studied, which was Pergamos. And by the way, Thyatira is, is very inconspicuous. It's inland, it's not on the coast, it has no real commerce, no real architecture, no real uh, medical, philosophical breakthroughs. It's, it's tiny, and it's just fascinating to me. One of the tiny, most insignificant, we would think inconspicuous, and Jesus gives it the most attention. So, to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, these things says the Son of God, the only time in all the book of Revelation is Jesus called the Son of God, is in this text. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 18, the only time. Now, Jesus' favorite designation of himself was the title Son of Man, used 80-plus times in the New Testament. Son of Man helps us relate more to Jesus' humanity, but Son of God relates more to his and his alone, his, his deity. Now, why would Jesus introduce himself as the Son of God? I'll tell you why. He's about to rebuke them. He's about to speak words to them that are hard to hear. And they need to be reminded that it's not just anybody talking to them. It's the actual founder, the creator of the church himself, Jesus Christ, has noticed some things that are missing, noticed some things that are out of line in Thyatira. And so he introduces himself as the Son of God who's about to give a word of exhortation. These things says the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire. Okay, let's continue. And his feet are like fine brass. And Jesus says, oida, I know, all four times, all four times that we've studied these four churches, he begins with this word oida, I know, which means it's not gnosko. Gnosko in the Greek is a generic knowledge. Oida is a personalized, very well acquainted kind of knowledge. I know you inside and out, Jesus says. I know what's going on. At the First Baptist Church of Thyatira, if you will, or the First Methodist Church, First Presbyterian, whatever church, I know Jesus says, I created it, I gave my life for it, and I'm very well aware. I am omniscient. I know all things. I know what's going on in your church. And by the way, I know the following five things that you're doing well. A word of commendation. I know your ergon, where we get this word ergonomics. I know your works. I know your love, your agape, sacrificial love. I know your service. I know your diaconian. Diakonos, that's where we get the word deacon. I know your faith, and a better translation of that word is, I know your faithfulness. I know your faithfulness, and I know your patience, your hupomonin, how you withstand, how you stand under the weight. You notice there in the visual that it mentioned probably one of many, a multitude of martyrs who died for their faith. And as for your works, notice what Jesus said, the last are more than the first. We'll talk about that in just a minute. Nevertheless, 
However, on the other hand, but, whoa, Nellie, come on now, I've got something to tell you. He changes. I mean, he goes from this identification and this commendation, and Jesus switches on them very quickly, and he says, now, listen to me carefully. I have a word of exhortation. I have something against you, and this is it. You allow that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself. Now, I had not seen that. By the way, I had not seen that until this morning. Going over this sermon for upteen times, it's, it's like I'd never seen it before. The pride and the arrogance, the church did not call her a prophetess. She called herself a prophetess, okay? She needed to tell everybody how prominent and how important she is. By the way, I'm a prophetess of God, and I got something I want to tell you people. And here's what she tells them. She seduces them. She talks them into committing sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And you got corruption and compromise. She has a PhD in both. Corruption and compromise. And Jesus said, I gave her time to repent. Isn't the Lord amazing? And you know, we, we can be so egregious in our sinfulness, so blatant in our immorality, and we can do things, say things, think things that are not of God. And God says, come to me and, and repent, metanoia, change your mind, change your way, do an about face, do a 180, go away from that. And Jesus says, if you'll do that, I will forgive you. I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, but she did not repent. And next week, we'll pick up in verse 22 and see the remainder of this text. So first of all, let's begin with identification. If you're taking notes in your outline there, the number one thing is identification. Let's identify the city, the culture, the church, and the Christ, okay? Let's identify, first of all, the city of Thyatira. And by the way, it's the modern-day city of Akasar, Akasan. In, in modern-day Turkey. Unlike Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamos, it had no cultural, intellectual, medicinal, political, architectural influence, none. Like I said a moment ago, it's not very prestigious. It, it, basically, it's simply known as the gateway city to another city. How would you like that? You know, it's kind of like, oh, really, you live in Thyatira? Oh, that's the city that leads you to Pergamos, right? Yeah, that, that's right. And I've said this before, but let me say it again. Whenever you study from these seven churches from Ephesus, watch me just real quick, from Ephesus to Laodicea, almost a complete circle, and it was an old postal route. This is the route that they took to deliver the mail, and Jesus is just talking to them in their geographical location, and he's about right here. He's talking to the city of Thyatira. They were known for two things. Two primary things they were known for. Number one, they were known for their trade unions or their trade guilds. And we're, we're familiar with that. We have that even today, labor unions, where that's the conglomerate of the people that come together and they represent the populace or the, those who labor in, in, in these trading guilds. And they were already formulated and they were perfected in Thyatira. And many people believe that Lydia was a trade union representative from Thyatira over in Philippi. And by the way, Lydia is the first European convert to Christianity, and she is from the city of Thyatira. Let, let's go ahead and show, show, show you that. Now, a certain woman in Acts uh, 16, 14 named Lydia. She heard us, Paul said. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshiped God. And the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. So Lydia 
is on a business trip, maybe she's representing the trade union, she's over that union, or maybe she's from Thyatira, and now she just lives in Philippi. We don't know, but she is a very prominent person in the New Testament because she's the first European convert, and she is from the city of Thyatira. So number one, they are known for the trade unions, the trade guilds. Number two, they are known for this reddish, purplish dye, D-Y-E, that they extracted, not from the shellfish, but they extracted it from the matter root. And they would take that root, and they would pulverize it, and they would glean from it this dye, and they would take that dye. Well, I hadn't planned on saying this. I'm just full of surprises today. And they would do something like this. You know, this is a pretty uh, colorful shirt. Thank you, brother. Appreciate it. There's got to be a reward in heaven for this, Ken. You always help me, and I, I thank you. And so they would take... Um, they, they, they were like us, they like things colorful, and so they would mix it, and, and, and they, would, they would make it look something like this. It would be a, a colorful, and it was a commodity. It was, a, it was an art that they had perfected in the city of Thyatira, and that's what they were known for. And by the way, you saw it a minute ago that Lydia, she was a seller of purple, a businesswoman. It's very interesting to me. There, there are two women associated with the city of Thyatira. One is somebody you name your daughter after? And the other, help me, does anybody name their daughter Jezebel? <laughs> yeah, really, it's like naming your son Ichabod. You know, we don't, do, we don't do that. How many of you know of a Lydia? There's a lots of, of Lydia, beautiful name. A beautiful Christian convert named Lydia. So we're identifying the culture and the city. We've talked about the church. Now let's talk about Christ. Identifying Jesus. Well, let's let him identify himself. Because he gives us three titles, if you will, and they're right there in the Word of God. First of all, as I said in the public reading of God's Word, that he identifies himself as the Son of God. These things says the Son of God, deity, the Lord Christ. And he says this, I really believe he's identifying himself this way because he's about to make some bold proclamations to this church. I like the way John MacArthur puts it when he writes, Not comfort, but judgment is in store for the church in Thyatira. When Christ's divine power moves against this adulterous assembly, end of quote, okay? So, Son of God. Number two, eyes like a flame of fire. Picture that in your mind's eye for a moment. Eyes like flames of fire. What does fire do? It purges. It cleanses. And by the way, Jesus knows what he's doing. He has, he has given them a warning about what is about to happen. Son of God, eyes, penetrating gaze, the vision of God himself. It's like a flame of fire that, that purifies, that, that punishes, that, that sees everything. Does that not just get a hold of you just a little bit? To know that a sovereign, awesome, omnipotent, all powerful God sees everything. He sees everything that you did on Friday night. He saw that. He saw what you did Saturday morning. He was, listen child of God, he was right there in the room with you, young people, with your girlfriend on your date. He was there. He sees everything. He knows everything. And those of us who name the name of Christ, that we are followers of Christ, then just rest assured, he pays particular attention for the way we live our lives. 
the gaze of God. Now, Rick, he was a young boy, and he had a serious chocolate incident. His mom said, now, Rick, I know you got your eyes on those ice cream chocolate bars. Somebody help me. You ever seen those things? It's just like they're white. Somebody dipped them in chocolate, and they sealed them up. I just, I'm getting hungry thinking about it. And the, and the mom says, now, honey, I'm going to go help Mr. Cook, and I'm going to go help him. He's our neighbor, and, and, and so I'm just going to leave you for a few minutes. He's probably about 9, 10 years of age. I'll be right. Well, she's, I don't know that I'll be right back because I may have to help him out. Well, guess what Rick's thinking about for the whole time? He's thinking about them ice cream chocolate bars. He can't stand it. So he says, I gotta just, I just want to have a bite. That's all, just a bite, and then I'll wrap it back up and I'll stick. He, he opens up the freezer. He opens up the carton of the, of the chocolate-covered ice cream bars. He pulls it out. He unwraps it. He takes one bite, and here's the door open. He thought she was going to stay for a lot longer. So he goes, what do I do? He panicked. He, he took the ice cream bar, and he stuck it in his back pocket. He literally stuck it in his back pocket, and he went like this when his mom walked into the kitchen. She said, well, Mr. Cook's granddaughter came in from out of town, and she relieved me, and so I'm here early. How are you doing, Rick? I'm doing fine, Mom. Took off running. Running up to, the, uh, to, the, to his room. And uh, his mom stopped him and said, hey, hey Rick. He says, yes, ma'am. He, she said, you know, you got to be careful with those ice cream bars in your back pocket. They'll get real sticky. <laughs> and, and he looked at his mom, and he said, Mom, how did you know? Hey, come on, guys. Mama knows. You know what I'm saying? Mama's not omniscient, but she's almost omniscient. Mama just knows. And, and the mom told Rick these words. She said three things. She said, number one, she said, there's a wooden stick sticking out of your pants. There is chocolate around your mouth, and there's guilt in your eyes. Now, if a mama can know that much, help me now. God knows everything. And God sees with this penetrating vision, not to make us cower in, in fear and go, oh, no, God's going to zap me any moment now. I'm just going to be, oh, I'm so terrible. I'm so simple. No, no, that's not the reason why. God he wants you to live differently. He, he wants you to make a difference where you live your life so that people will look at you and you'll be a reflection of Jesus Christ. But listen, if you're not living for him, if you're not walking with him, then it's hard to give a good witness for him, okay? So number one, the Son of God. Number two, he says, eyes like a flame of fire. Number three, feet like unto burnished fine brass. Now, that may be lost on you and me in the 21st century. Sometimes we think of brass as immobility, that just feet full of brass. I mean, Jesus is having a hard time walking around. That's not it at all. He moves with ease and alacrity all throughout these seven churches. Okay, that's not it at all. So what does it mean? Many times the word brass is associated with judgment. Okay, and I can give you examples in the Bible. One is Deuteronomy 28, 23. And so you see, Jesus is prepping them for the word he's about uh, to give them, a word of commendation, but also a word of exhortation. I love David Jeremiah. I still enjoy listening to him preach, and I enjoy reading his writings. And he says this. He says, and I quote, It is important for the church today 
we must realize that the Christ who stood ready to judge the seven churches in Revelation, he stands ready to judge our churches today. What has changed except the passage of time? Nothing. The resurrected Christ searching the hearts of his people in the first century is also, stay with me, he is also searching the hearts of his people in the 21st century, end of quote. That is a sobering thought for me, at least it is for me as your pastor, that God, he watches Great Hills Baptist Church. It's his church. He created it. He founded it. And he is peculiarly interested if we name the name of Christ and we say we are members of this church, and then we are held to a higher standard. And, and, and Jesus watches us, and he wants to encourage us and motivate us, but he also wants to keep us in tow, keep us in line, so that we live a life that is pleasing uh, to him. So that is a word of identification. Let, let me pick up the speed just a little bit and go to a word of commendation. Now, there are five things, and I'm only going to go through these very quickly. There are five things that Jesus commends the church at Thyatira. These are some things that they excelled in. And number one, he says, I know your works. Ergon, I know that you do general good deeds on behalf of, of many. And by the way, that is not lost in the eyes of God. God sees our good deeds, our good works, and he commends them. It's interesting to me, too, if you'll notice carefully in verse 19. Well, you know, it's not in the English, it's in the Greek. It, in the Greek New Testament, it reads, I know the works, the love, the service, the faith, the patience. It's interesting to me that all of these five accolades are preceded by the definite article, the. You say, well, what's so significant about that? The Lord notices. He, he appreciates, he says, not just your works, the works, the very works that you are doing as a local assembly in Thyatira. I just want you to know, I see it, I notice it, they are conspicuous, they are honorable, and I just want you to know, Thyatira, I commend you for that. Can I just say that? Can I just ask you something? I hadn't planned on saying this, but let me, let me just ask you something. Are you doing anything at Great Hills that Jesus would notice? There are two answers to that question, okay? A yay or a nay. You say, well, Brother Danny is complaining and arguing and fuzzing. Does that, does that count? Nope, that don't count. What are you doing at Great Hills that Jesus notices? Notice it's in the context of the church. Well, I do a lot of good deeds, Brother Danny, outside of my neighborhood, and you should, but that's not what we're talking about. What instrument do you play in the orchestra? Do you sing in the choir? Do you serve as a greeter? Do you teach a class? Do you help with the students? Do you help with the children? Do you help with the worship ministry? What are the security team? What are you doing at Great Hills that God would say, man, I appreciate that. Some of you say, well, I'm just a bystander. I'm just a spectator, and I'm just going to let everybody else do all the work. Well, that's okay for a while. You know, for a while, that's okay. Thank you all for letting me go there. I, I feel good about that. I feel, I'm glad some of you are feeling guilty as dirt. I mean, you're just like, man, I just, I'm not doing anything here. I need to be doing something. Amen. Amen. You need to. Number two, I know you're agape. I know your love. Now, they loved deep. They sacrificed. And now I'm beginning to see their greatest strength, help me, was probably their greatest weakness. They loved to a fault. 
They love to the point where Jezebel, oh, we know you probably shouldn't be doing that, but I tell you what, Jezebel, don't do that again the 15th time. Jezebel, you know we love you. You just got to quit doing that. That's not good. God's going to get us for you doing that. And, and the 30th time, Jezebel, if we have to tell you one, you say they love to a fault. And, and Jesus commends them for the good love, but in a moment he's going to rebuke them for their lack of confrontation. Number three, for their faithfulness, their fidelity. Um, some of these guys in that church were like some of you guys in this church. I'm telling you what, we open up the doors, you're there. You're there helping turn the lights on. You're helping turning the lights out. You're there picking up the trash. You're there teaching the class. You're there singing in the choir. You're there. You, some of you are just absolutely faithful to God. And I just want you to know, I appreciate that. And there may never be a time where I honor you and recognize you like I did with our brother this morning. But I promise you, there is one who sees and honors and recognizes you far more than I ever could, and it's Christ. It's the Lord of the church, and he sees and he recognizes you. And I hope you take courage in that, take comfort in that. C is faith. D is diaconian. It's where we get the word deacon, and it means no task is too menial. We help, we meet the needs, we serve, we do whatever it takes. And by the way, let me just do a shout out to the deacons. You've heard these horror stories about Baptist churches and deacons. Have you? Have you heard jokes? Have you heard stories about these horrific things that happen in deacons' meetings? I just want you all to know that does not happen at Great Hills. If you're interested in joining this church and you're like, well, I want to see a knockdown, drag-out business meeting, and I want to see the pastor and the deacons just go toe-to-toe, and that's the kind of church I'm looking for, you're in the wrong place. We don't, we don't believe in that stuff. We believe that deacons serve and, 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 and pastors. We, we cast vision and we lead and we serve God together as deacons and staff. In fact, Doug, we're going to meet next week. And it's not something that I'm dreading. It's actually something I'm, I'm looking forward to. Some of y'all want to take my pulse, don't you? Like, Are you alive, preacher? Nobody looks forward to a deacon's meeting. Well, I do. It must be strange. I am strange. Thank you. <laughs> yes. E is uh, hupomonin, or endurance. One writer says, patience or bearing under is the ability to be still when everything around us is going crazy. <laughs> the ability to be still when everything else is storm-tossed. And then Jesus makes this interesting statement. He says, in fact, your last works, they're more than your first works. And I got to thinking about that, and I think the most accurate explanation is the most simple. Not only did they start doing good deeds when they, in their embryonic form, in their nascent church, right when they started, you know, you ever notice that a brand new church, they either work or die. Do you, you notice, notice that? And there is a, there is a pulsating vigor in a, in a church plant. And by the way, I, we're going to plant some churches at Great Hills. I don't know if y'all know that or not, but we are. I don't know when but I know we will eventually plant some churches at, from Great Hills Baptist Church. Now, y'all may come up to me five years from now and say, Brother Danny, do you remember when? I'm going to say, yes, I do, and hold me to that. Whenever you plant a church, man, it just takes off, usually because of the works. Now, get this. That church was started, and now years later, they are still working feverishly for God so that Jesus could say, you know, y'all haven't phased out. You haven't fizzled at all. You started well, and now you're ending well. And then Jesus says, what? However, 
Nevertheless, this is a big conjunction, junction. It has a huge function. It's going to turn everything. However, nevertheless, and then for the rest, I mean, for most of the rest of the pericope, the paragraph, the narrative is going to be Jesus pointing out things that they've been doing wrong, okay? So let's look at them as we wrap up the, the message today, all right? Ready? Exhortation. Jesus says, I've, I've got some things, um, I'm going to be honest. I believe Christ is extremely honest, straightforward, bold, offensive, and intolerant. Okay? Let me say that again. Jesus is about to be bold, insensitive, straightforward, offensive, intolerant. You know, I heard a quote by Billy Graham, and it went something like this. You know, in our country today, everybody's so concerned with not offending anybody except God. Wow. So, he's about to point out some things that they have got to rectify. They have got to change. And number one, he says, in verse 20, he says, I have a few things against you because you allow. Notice this. He points to the church leadership before he points to the problem. He says, you guys allow. Remember Angelos? Remember Pastor? You are allowing. You know full well what she's doing, but you don't have the backbone in you to go tell her. Maybe that's why Jesus called her Jezebel. Now, by the way, that's not her name. All right, that's not her name. Remember, remember who Jezebel was? Let's go back in time, just, just for a minute. Now, again, the New Testament, especially John, presupposes that we have a thorough understanding of the Old Testament. But in the Old Testament, there was a woman, literally a woman, the wicked wife of king of Israel named Ahab. Her name was Jezebel. Her daddy was a priest in the Ashtaroth religion. Now, what in the world is Ahab marrying a woman whose daddy is a priest in the fertility goddess of Ashtaroth? It's like Epaphrodite in Greek and Venus uh, in the Romans. I mean, it is this sexual worship, this iniquity, this ungodliness where you combined in some twisted way human sexuality worshiping a deity. And that's what Jezebel was doing. She had crafted away this antinomian licensed doctrine. By the time you came out of her class, buddy, you felt good about doing anything. By the way, you can go to many churches today. And after you leave the service, you can live any way you want to live. And the preacher would say, that's okay because God will forgive you. By the way, I just want you to know something. You come here, then we're going to preach God's word. And we're going to love you. We're going to encourage you. And we're going to say it's not okay to go live like a heathen. I mean, live differently in Jesus' name. I mean, not be a weirdo, but be a somebody who's sold out to Christ. And so that when you are in your party or when you're in your moment and there's massive temptation and they say, why don't you come with us? Why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? You say, I cannot do that. I'm a member at Great Hills Baptist Church. And more importantly, I'm a member of the kingdom of God. That's what I'm pulling for. That's what I want from you. That's what I want from you. I hadn't planned on saying all that either, but thank you, Lord. Let me, let me get back to this, uh, this woman. She taught heresy in the church. In Thyatira, there was this female oracle called Sambathi. 
Sambathi was this female-led religion where the oracle was this prophetess. And what Thyatira, the church, had done was allow that which was happening in the secular world seep right into the ecclesiastical world. And nobody was really calling attention to it except the one who started the church, and that was Christ. So Jesus says, we got to deal with her. Uh, one writer puts it this way. He says, this preoccupation with female-centered religion may have been unwitting preparation in the church for the corrupt ministry of Jezebel. You know, the devil has a plan. He has a plan for every church. He will try to water us down through compromise. He will try to make the church not be bold and strong in doctrine. Whatever, whatever he can find his strategy, if it's disunity in a church or if it, whatever, he is expert at it. And he will make that his Achilles heel and try to split and harm and defeat God's church. John R. W. Stott put it this way. If the devil cannot conquer the church by the application of political pressure or the propagation of intellectual heresy, he will try the insinuation of moral evil. This was the dragon's strategy in Thyatira, end of quote. So we have corruption, we have compromise. And Jesus is pointing it out. That woman Jezebel calls herself a prophetess. She teaches and seduces my servants to commit sexual immorality and things uh, offered to idols. And Jesus said, I've given her time to repent, and she has not repented. And so now, therefore, if you guys don't take care of this, I am going to take care. And I don't know what all that means. But I do know that God holds us responsible in a church to hold our people to a high level of living so that we can present ourselves as a radiant church to Jesus Christ without stain, without blemish, holy and acceptable to Him. You know, the Bible says about Christ in John 1.14, it says, Jesus was full of grace and, anybody know that text? Full of grace and truth. Usually the temptation is to err on one side or the other. To be like Thyatira and to be so gracious and kind and accommodating, you're just like, oh, it's really not that big of a deal. Or, on the other hand, you can be like Ephesus. Everything's a big deal. I mean, they're so doctrinally straight, and it, le it lends itself to hypocrisy and legalism and Pharisaism. And so, I tell you, the devil will do everything he can to a church to sway us to one side or the other. But to find that balance of grace and truth, orthodoxy, orthopraxy, ethics, and belief, to be able to walk in that sweet balance, it's, it's possible. And not only is it possible, it is expected of the church. I just finished reading uh, this book by Mark Devers called The Nine Marks of an Effective Church. Mark Devers has a Ph.D. from Cambridge University. He pastors Capitol Hill Baptist Church, a Southern Baptist church right in the heart of our nation's capital. It is a very vivacious, growing, doctrinal, church, disciplining kind of church. His nine marks, he said, here are the nine key fundamental components of a church that is pleasing to God, 
on fire for the Lord. And you know what the very first characteristic in his book is? I did a little holy dance when I read it. You know, I was like, whoop, whoop. You know, I was just like, really? He said, the number one most important thing in a church is if your pastor will preach the Bible. Not, not just talk about stories and the Bible, but actually literally preach verse by verse, line by line, the Word of God. You say, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard of. People don't do that today. You're right. You're right. Most of the churches in America have abandoned the text. I could never do that. If I ever did that, I would quit preaching. I would. I would stop preaching if I ever abandoned the Word of God. And it's so easy to be tempted to do that. Because, you know, you want people to like you. I mean, you really do. I mean, God's given me the ability to tell stories. I, I just, I, I don't have very few abilities, y'all. I'm telling you, very few, Butch. I can't fix anything. I can't grow anything. I can't do anything. But I can talk. God gave me the gift of gab to be able to talk. And I could please people a lot if I just told a lot of stories, made you feel good. But I can't do that, Dr. Murray. I can't do that and displease God. So you have to have the grace and the truth, the orthodoxy, the orthopraxy, the, 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 whole, the whole thing. So anyhow, Mark Devers telling the story about Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Spurgeon wrote a book called The Soul Winner. And in the book, Daniel, you, you would, I thought about you when I read this quote. You, you'll like this. This is, this, is, this is strong. He says, quote, But if there be no vital change, no inward godliness, if there be no love for God, no prayer, no work of the Holy Spirit, then the person who says, I am saved, is but your own assertion. It may delude you, but it will not deliver you. If you say, I prayed and I've asked Jesus in my heart and I'm baptized and I live like the devil, you're going to hell. That's, that's what Spurgeon was saying. But, but wait a minute, I prayed and asked Jesus in my heart and now I have license to live like a demon. Well, somebody fooled you. I mean, I, 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 hold on just a second. Okay, take a deep breath. Okay, okay, good. Spurgeon. He's telling the story about this pastor, Roland Hill. Roland Hill is a pastor in London, and Spurgeon was a pastor from the 1860s to the 1890s there at the Metropolitan Church in London, England. And they, they only had 6,000 at the first service. But then after he preached his hour expositional sermon, those 6,000 got up, and in mass, they exited, and the other 6,000 came in the 1830s. Okay, it's a megachurch before we even knew what a megachurch was. So Roland Hill is a pastor, and he's walking around in the city, and this guy, drunk as a skunk, comes up to the pastor, and he goes, Hey, Pastor Roland! Pastor Roland says, Yes, sir. He said, I am one of your converts. And you know what Pastor Roland said? He said, you sure are, but you're none of the Lord's, or you would not be drunk. See, there's some stuff going on in this church at Thyatira, and it is absolutely reminiscent of some of the stuff that's going on in our church and in churches all over America, where there's this duplicitous, there's this hypocrisy of say one way, look one way, and then live a secret kind of clandestine life on the side. And I just want to bring us to a point where we 
are just walking with Jesus, loving Jesus. No, we're not going to be perfect. In fact, we're going to, in fact, that's why we need to come together on Sundays and say, God, we're not perfect. We need you. Would you fill us? Would you help us motivate us so we can go out and be the church you want us to be? Wow, that's Thyatira, part one. All right. Next week is, uh, is next week Memorial Day? I get them confused. Okay, good. Many of y'all are going to be traveling. I'm going to be right here. I can't wait to get into part two. So why don't we just do it right now for the next hour? Is that okay? I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Amen. Would y'all help that lady? She just passed out over there. I think she's, she got real nervous. God bless y'all. I love you, church family. And what we're going to do at this time is we're going to have just a good old-fashioned, God-centered, hallelujah, invitation. And so, Jana, why don't you and the team come on up here. And as you come, they're going to sing a song. Lord, I need you. Lord, I need you. Every hour, I need you. And I want y'all to know, we all need the Lord. Some of us today, some of you for the very first time need Christ. You need to accept Jesus into your heart. And you need to alleviate that doubt and that worry and that fear and, and do what Ryan Hall did. Just settle it with the Lord. All right, settle it and just come on. Let us help you. Let us baptize you. I know that life. I know that world of doubting and fear. I lived that for 19 years, and glory to God, he set me free from that when I genuinely accepted Christ. So some of you need to believe on Christ and to be saved. I mean, genuinely, all right? Others of you, I, I, you're saying, you know what? I think this is the church God wants me to join. I prayed about it, I, and it's certainly not because you got a perfect pastor. He's not perfect, and it's not because you got a perfect whatever, and that's true. But this is where God wants you to come. God wants you to bring your single adult self. He wants you to bring your family. He wants you to come on, be a part of this multi-generational, multi-ethnic church called Great Hills. And God is blessing. God is growing. God is moving. Things are happening, and you want to get in on it, all right? So you come on. You get in on it. Then you got to go to our class, okay? Because we just don't take you and say, oh, come on in. We got to take you through the class and make sure you're for real, okay? Make sure you're for real and that, you're, that your motives are pure and that you want to be a part of the church, not a, not a problem in the church, but a part of the solution in the church. So we want you to come do that. Are y'all ready? Y'all ready, church? Y'all, this is like... Big time ribeye steak time for me. This is my favorite part of the, of the whole week. You say, dude, you need to get a life. What, what do you mean? This part, this part right here, right now, we will stand. Now, some of y'all, when we stand, you'll, you'll leave. You'll, you'll miss the big ribeye steak part, okay? Then we stand, we start singing, the Spirit of God just falls and and people start getting saved and people's lives start getting changed and people start coming forward and we pray with you. It's my favorite time. So let me pray for you. And Jan, as soon as I say amen, let's just start singing. Lord God in heaven, you are awesome. You are the creator. You are the sustainer. You are the redeemer. You are the sanctifier. You are our God, and we love you. We worship you. And Lord, we recognize that in and of ourselves, we are sinners. And we need grace. We need forgiveness. Father, I pray for the Jezebelian spirit that may be in some people's lives here today, that, God, you would eradicate that, and they would repent, move away from their corruption and compromise, and serve you, God. Be free in serving you. I pray, Lord, for more Lydian spirits, 
more spirits, God, people that you open their heart and they believe and they, they get involved and they serve and they are a blessing to the church. So, Lord, as we stand in a moment in your honor, as we sing your praise, we pray, oh, holy God, you would do what only you can do and you would move in our church in power. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you stand, as we sing. Our pastors, counselors are here. Why don't you come? Let us pray with you. Let us encourage you. Even now as we sing, God bless you as you come. Lord, I need you. Woo, I love it.